baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. If we hope to survive in this digital age, we have to think critically about the messages we consume. Someone created those messages for a reason. Let's find out why. Sometimes we just have to ask, what the media? I'm Megan Lynch, virtual consumer editor at KMOX Radio. I'm joined by media literacy expert Julie Smith. In this episode, do search engines and paywalls impact coverage of news? And to me, that really involves blowing up what we think of as uh, newspapers and really thinking about um, what are anchor institutions and communities that are trusted and how do we create information rather than news? Julie and I talk with Professor Nikki Usher, author of News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. I was really intrigued when I got the synopsis for your book talking about news for the rich, white, and blue. And so basically what you say in your book is that newspapers struggling to make ends meet and provide quality reporting have chosen to go with who their audience is that's paying for the service, basically. So tell us a little bit about your research and the methods that you use to, to draw these conclusions about modern-day metropolitan newspapers. Yeah, so um, something that I have been concerned about, like many of us, is the decline of local news and what that means for democracy. But all too often, we tend, um, especially the news industry, tends to place blame on everything but itself. And I thought that it was really important to look at some of the structural problems that exist within the news industry and focus really hard on questions of power and inequality within newsrooms and the way that news organizations think about how they're going to make profits. Some of it is very subtle and implicit and unsaid, and some of these strategies are very intentional, right? Who are paying subscribers? Well, paying subscribers, by and large, are white, um, older, uh, at this point, given media distrust, more likely to be liberal. Um, those are what the subscriber base looks like. So when newspapers say they're growing subscribers, they're not talking about growing untapped audiences that have previously shown little interest for lots of different reasons um, in their newspapers. Um, and you can point to many historically marginalized groups. So what I really wanted to do was to think hard about power and inequality in journalism and look both at the inside of newsrooms and sort of their understanding of kind of the market structure. So the book itself uses a lot of different methods. I use quantitative research where I'm testing propositions. I try to do it in a friendly way so ordinary people can understand it because I myself don't usually do those methods. I try to, to make these connections really clear. And I also did a ton of interviewing 
But my bread and butter has been watching journalists work. So, for example, I've spent a lot of time in NPR and American public media, literally like sitting in at news meetings and watching people do interviews. And from all of that, over the past 13, 14 years, I've really gotten a good understanding as an insider outsider of what makes newsrooms tick. Right? And if we're going to solve the problem of the disconnects between journalism and democracy and journalism and the trust of Americans, we need to also look within the news industry. Now, what fascinates me about your book is the fact that this has always been a business. I don't, you yes. know, I, I think sometimes we tend to forget or we want to forget that it's a business and we've always relied for the most part on advertising or financial support from someone. Right. So what do you think has made such a difference maybe in the past decade? So I think one of the things I find so interesting is most ordinary people don't really understand the extent to which that traditional advertising model for media um, generally has collapsed. Um, and so what's really happened is we've had a sea change in the way that advertising works. So instead of an ad being put in a print newspaper and there's like a captured audience of, if you want to reach everybody in a metropolitan area and you can't afford television commercial, you're gonna do it in the Sunday newspaper, right? That's just not the case anymore. Um, Advertise uh, companies from the very smallest to the very largest can do precise micro-targeting that they believe to be far more effective than a random advertisement on a news organization's website that's only maybe getting 100,000 views over the course of a week. And so when we think about the entire online advertising structure, uh, what we see is that news organizations no longer have the monopoly over attention. And that has undermined the fundamental financial model for the commercial news media. Nikki, can you tell us what your hunch is on what the Beltway misunderstands about the heartland? I thought that part of your book was really interesting. Thank you. Um, so this Beltway heartland, heartland divide is, I think, at the crux of the misunderstandings between sort of the elite American news media and the consumers that live outside the big cities that many of these journalists have decided to call home. And this was something I felt acutely um, myself, having lived in Washington, D.C. for eight years and then moving to the cornfields of Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois, and just the sense that the story isn't being told or understood correctly, that these outsiders are coming in and diagnosing problems and deficits without really understanding underlying communities, making large assessments about the way people think politically, the what, what people's values are, um, and doing it from afar. And often, I think, with a sense of scorn. Um, you saw this, like I call, I refer to it as the Trump safari, um, but I think that you could also call it the COVID denial safari, going and finding people in rural America who just won't get vaccinated, when in reality, there's probably somebody down the hall in somebody's New York City apartment building that also shares the same beliefs about misinformation around vaccines. And so um, it's this real tendency to prejudge and come in with a story that already exists. And the problem is, is that you're talking in many cases about populations that already have strong media distrust. So when you get the story wrong, you prejudge 
what the story is and people see that and they don't see themselves reflected either in the journalists, right, or the journalism, that wedge just continues to grow. For me, I've been in this business for, gosh, three decades now. I'm wondering when you did your research and and you talked to these journalists in these newsrooms, how is what you're seeing as far as, you know, how the news is tailored different than what maybe we would consider just knowing your audience and and who your demographic is? Explain for me that that difference in kind of what you're looking at and and maybe the, I don't want to use, I hate the word agenda, but maybe, Mm -hmm. you know how the day's news is set versus knowing yeah. the audience and what they're interested in. So, I mean, I think a lot of people and you're, you know, you're journalists, so you understand this, that newsrooms aren't sitting there like plotting, right? There isn't some like, okay, we're going to do this story this way, right? Like there aren't, lar- there isn't time for these like significant, like meta theoretical conversations when you're just trying to produce content. Um, and I think that, that's why those implicit assumptions um, are so important and that's why who is in that power and process of deciding um, is does really matter what those people look like what those experiences are and often and i think you see this reflected in the move towards engagement journalism but often the understood audience is an undifferentiated mass or maybe imagined as you know your mother, right? Write this so your mother will understand this. Well, if you are a white journalist from the Midwest, your mother is a white Midwestern woman of a certain age. And if that is your imagined audience, that is not what the demographics of your city likely look like. Um, And so that's one side of it. But there's also the quantitative understanding of the audience. I think a lot of people don't really understand how much data newsrooms have. It's, it's, It's metadata. We don't know who you are, right? But there's constant data coming in on all of these analytic platforms. But those are ultimately responsive. So you put content out there. And the analytics kind of function is people are clicking, people are not clicking. And you don't really know why right? Because these are a disaggregated mass of people on the internet clicking on things, and you just kind of have to guess. And so I think that the sort of, you don't really know who your audience is, you try to humanize that audience. But if you are not really representative of the audience you're trying to serve, then you're going to have these missing gaps. Nikki, it came out last year that uh, Pew did some research that turns out Americans trust search engines more than traditional or legacy media. Mm-hmm. What is your response to that? And what advice do you have for those of us trying to make sense of the world today? So, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting that culturally Google has become a, I will Google this as like an extension for knowledge. Whatever Google says, it's like the part of your brain that you don't have, right? Okay, let me Google that. Or I know the name of that person. Hold on, let me Google that, right? And generally for a really long time, Google has been fairly reliable in generating that kind of information, those quick responses like, oh yeah, what's the name of that movie star, right? Where it starts to get complicated is that Google itself has changed, right? And the kinds of ways that it is trying to profit has changed. Jeff Fowler of the Washington Post has a really great video um, that you might link to in show notes where he demonstrates what Google looked like 
probably five years ago and what Google looked like now. And if you try to Google something today, you're going to get like 10, 15, 20 ads. But there is something that people, before you get to any of the results or a Google generated answer. Um, and I think one of the things people really sort of blindly trust is that the Google algorithm is somehow neutral and surfacing the best information for them. And I think that that was probably more the case 10 years ago, but now Google is increasingly just trying to make profit from them. Um, and I think it's really a lack of understanding around how algorithms work that make people believe like the machines are neutral when we know they're not versus news organizations, which are made you know, composed of people who are very much not neutral. Nikki, when we look at your research and look at what the future is of this, I'm talking to you as as a reporter and a journalist who went through a program created by Paul Simon, who started out as a newspaper man, of course, then went into politics and yeah. created the public affairs reporting program at what used to be Sangamon State University. You know, yeah. I feel very proud and and uh, privileged to be able to work in this profession and have always felt like I'm providing a service. So to really look at the the black and white, as it were, of what's happening in the journalism business, especially for newspapers, and, and to look at your research, it's a little disheartening. So what kind of hope do we have for the future and what do we need to do as as journalists, as news people, to get that trust back and to really rethink the model of what we do? I don't have a lot of hope for the future of local commercial journalism, um, it really improving in its inclusivity um, and its you know, relationship in terms of trust with audiences, uh, simply because the economics and the composition of those news organizations don't really suggests that much will or can change. Um, and I find that upsetting. Um, and I also agree with you that for many journalists, this is a calling. You don't choose to make uh, not a great living and um, have job insecurity knowingly um, if you don't really believe in the mission of what you do. Uh, but how, so the question becomes, how do we connect the people like yourselves um, to sort of audiences in a way that maybe disintermediates some of these commercial kind of models and some of the baggage. And to me, that really involves blowing up what we think of as uh, newspapers and really thinking about um, what are anchor institutions and communities that are trusted and how do we create information rather than news. Um, that people really need to live their daily lives. Um, and so I think it's difficult because you need investigative journalism, but you also need really practical journalism about like, is my school going to have a new quarantine policy this year? Um, and it's hard for people to really navigate a complicated information environment. So what I really hope is that we'll start to see community members working with journalists or themselves taking on some of the roles of journalists where journalists can't be um, and, and serving as communicators for their communities. And I think that we need to rethink journalism around this way. I'm not hopeful that the commercial news media as it stands can really recover. One of the things that makes me nervous about what you're saying, Nikki, is that- Sorry. <laughs> 
I feel bad. I'm like a doomsayer. <laughs> well, when you talk about information and journalism, I feel like as a, as a culture, at least in my classrooms, people have a really defi different definition now of what constitutes news. Uh, yeah. you know, my students will watch TikTok videos and think that they are well-informed. So I worry that our, we're losing our definition of what it actually means to be informed. And I, I wondered what, what your research said to that. So I don't study a lot of like youth media consumption, um, but it is sort of in the general context of what I understand through the kind of scholarship that I engage with. Um, and I've seen, you know, I taught my first class yesterday with uh, really engaged students at the University of San Diego, and I asked them how many of them had read a news story today, and none of them raised their hands. They mentioned maybe they had gotten some alerts. Uh, I want to kind of push back that this isn't anything other than normal. We know that young people tend not to be as engaged with news as sort of older audiences. So, and that tends to be kind of growth over time in terms of interest and things like once your kids in school, you care a lot about what's happening in the local school board. When you're an 18 year old who isn't from a particular community, you're not that engaged. And as far as local political, or as far as national political discourse, they're mirroring what their elders are, which is that it's really depressing, frustrating, the same old, same old and tuning out. And you see that in the Washington Post, you know, not generating subscription dollars. It's because people are worn out, I think. So I don't want to place the blame on these students um, because I think it's reflecting enduring patterns. Um, and I also think that when we think of news just as information, we miss an important definition of what news does. News ties us together. News helps us understand important cultural issues and ourselves. And, you know, when you look at the current controversies in sports or entertainment, those are really intense social issues that are being argued, articulated in spaces that we wouldn't traditionally think of as hard news. Right. But if you think of the racial politics of football right now, that is absolutely political news and information. So I think we need to be a little bit more generous, maybe. I'm nodding as you're as you're saying. <laughs> I'm sorry. I sort of, you know, I, I just I want to place less blame on our audiences because that takes away the responsibility from news organizations of really doing some deep thinking about why people feel that way. No, you're I absolutely mean, right. You know, how many, I feel like I have whiplash every time I open my phone about what I'm supposed to be thinking and feeling about coronavirus. I had my kid watching the local television news in San Diego, which is really excellent local television, but he heard about a burglary and break-in at 7-Eleven, and he was worried about going inside our, our local 7-Eleven because he thought that something might happen. When you're a parent and you can't watch local television news with your kid, right, at six o'clock when you're preparing dinner, then you're not going to watch the news, right? Yeah, that's, you, your, it, that's your story for the classroom when you talk about mean world syndrome. Oh, yes, right? it, it absolutely is. Um, it, it is helpful to have a young uh, consumer of information to see as a lens of um, what it is that we're exposing the wider world to with the choices that journalists and producers of all kinds of media content make when they're imagining what will sell and what will intrigue people.
And I really like your idea of having the news industry be more reflective on what their role is rather than just blaming the audience. Um, I, I'm looking back at my own undergraduate days, even though I teach about the media now at a university, I don't think I consumed one bit of news for the four years that I, that I was in college. So it's not appropriate to blame them necessarily. But if I had had TikTok when I was an undergraduate, I would have been on it constantly. Well, and here's the thing. It's not that, you know, sometimes these influencers, they're not always on point, right? Because they're watching people like themselves, but these influencers will take up important issues. Um, the kinds of influencers that are out there in these niche communities are really validating for marginalized communities, for students that care about activism, for students that care about climate change. And you know what? All of those TikTok videos come with a point of view that the institutional news media is a little too, I'm just going to say it, chicken to embrace, right? Um, when you're watching a TikTok video where some skateboarder is telling you about how hot it is and it's climate change, right? That is a person giving you a point of view honestly and openly versus um, kind of big media sitting back and pretending it doesn't have opinions or an agenda. Well, that's something you would never hear a weatherman say, right? No, <laughs> no, you wouldn't, right? And it's an interesting question um, that, you know, we have a heat wave. Why do we have a heat wave? We have a power grid warning here in Southern California. Uh, why is that power grid warning a warning? These are a series of choices that were made by people, by government. Um, and, and so unpacking that and, and giving people a sense of why you can't do that when you're giving the weather uh, on the radio, you know, on TV, or in a little box on a website. Now, I've always been taught we have to be very careful not to draw conclusions for our audience, but to present them the information and let them draw conclusions. Are you saying we're even failing at that at this point? I think so. I mean, for every person you've mocked for who says I'm going to do my own research, haven't you actually just done that as a as a news like you write a news story, you produce a news story and you say, make your own decision. Right. Isn't like I don't see the difference between somebody saying, OK, I've got this and now I'm going to go do my own research further. Or I'm going to weigh this. This is one piece, one element of my research. We always make fun of those people that are like, I'm going to do my own research. Right. That's the same thing as you saying, come to your own conclusions. Right. People are looking for guidance. This is an extremely uncertain time. Right. Inflation is high. Social inequality is high. There is still a global pandemic, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Right. This is a, a, there's evidence of democratic backsliding. People want guidance. They want, I don't think people want to feel like they're being told what to think, but I think they want some guidance. And so this kind of neutral, he said, she said, really doesn't get to the heart of the confusion and the sense of crisis that I think many Americans feel. Um, and so a lot of people will think that journalists are hiding the ball because they're just presenting this information. What information are they holding back, right? And so this is something that, that journalists need to wrestle with because it's very uncomfortable. It goes against everything journalists have been traditionally taught for the past 40 years in journalism schools and in their newsrooms to be objective. That may not be helpful right now. Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with the objective. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, and maybe I'm old school, but yeah. uh, I, I don't feel like I'm intelligent enough 
are knowledgeable enough to guide people. I've never felt like that's my job. Now, Watchdog, I yeah. mean, we used to be considered the fourth estate. You know, yeah. we were the watchdogs. We were the ones keeping balance without putting uh, a, a definitive An agenda out there. So, um, I, I, Nikki, I wish you could see the look on my face as I'm uh -huh. looking to you. I'm, I'm just like, yeah. wow, this is, um, this is uncomfortable. I, I think it is really uncomfortable, but, you know, actually, if you think about that, the moment of um, high trust in journalism, what one of my colleagues, Daniel Helen, calls high modern period of journalism, right, this Watergate period, think about what was actually happening. It was journalists from the, uh, you know, from sort of like attacking in many ways, revealing the mechanisms of power, right? And if you think that doesn't come with a point of view or a starting premise that the possibility that power is corrupt, right? Journalists are often targeted and tagged as liberal because they're talking about social problems, right? If you decide homelessness is something that you're going to focus on in your newsroom, that is something you've decided is important. And you know what? A lot of progressives are really worried about homelessness. And so there's a mismatch, right, between story selection, the things that are covered and how people understand and interpret those selections that you've made. Um, and I think that that's just a reality. You have to wrestle with that discomfort. But I also think, look, we're in a period where there are real challenges to democracy, where we have for the first time a consistent threat of a president who has challenged the sanctity of the American electoral system. Free and fair elections are the bedrock upon which we like to claim our democracy, right? And the one and the bedrock upon which we encourage other countries to see themselves as democratic. And so when journalists don't take accountability to take a claim and say, democracy is under threat when we contest elections and instead report the president, the former president is contesting elections. That's that starts to be an abdication of responsibility in my from my perspective. But you know, I feel like these are issues that we can really talk about, but I, I would also encourage you to think about, you know, if that's something you're not comfortable with, maybe the things that you do as a journalist are very specific and important to your community. And what you're doing in your position is absolutely spot on and the best use of your time, right? This may not be the choice all journalists have to make. Nikki, you've given us a lot to think about today. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to yeah. join us on our podcast. Yeah, and the, the name of the book is News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. What the Media is produced by Odyssey St. Louis from the studios of KMOX Radio. I'm Megan Lynch with Julie Smith. Our executive producer is Beth Coglin. We invite you to visit KMOX.com for more on our media literacy project. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 